G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly ruin my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra, and this is a lot to talk about. Hugo Tuvi, how are you, mate? I'm good, thanks, Brad. How are you? Mate, very well, very well. We've just had a little preamble, pre-pod, just having a chat back and forth. This is the first time we're ever chatting face-to-face, or virtually, that is. Mate, I have to say, listen to your conversation with Dill Buckley on, I think it was Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday morning whilst I was at the gym. Mate, middle of the session, the sweaty eyes come on. Your story is so inspiring. It's like, it's such a pleasure to have you on, man. I, I really enjoy pe- speaking to people like yourself because there are some resemblances I draw between, you know, some of the challenges you face with your health and some that I have. But man, when I hear you speak about your stuff, I'm, I'm just ever so grateful because I feel like I've got off light in many ways. Um, how are you feeling at the moment? No, mate, love that. And it's very much... Um... Same with you, mate. I've um, yeah heard a few of your uh, potties that you've been on. I saw you with with Dill, um, and yeah, I can you're spot on when you listen to someone like yourself and you're saying about myself. You've kind of you can take a few things away, um, and I'm sure over the next sort of however long this potty will take, we'll uh, have those moments of being able to just you know almost understand what each other's saying. Um, so I love that, mate, and I appreciate you reaching out, and hopefully we can meet up in person one day. Um, I'd love that, but uh, mate, I'm doing all right, doing all right. It's as you probably appreciate, um, you know, some days are better than others. Some weeks are better than others, but um, I'm actually pretty good today. Uh, I'm only very early on into a new treatment called a fecal transplant, which has been in the works for almost the last six months or so. And yeah, I'm about day three into that. So um, they tell me that it will get worse before it gets better. So, um, you know, I'm prepared for that, but yeah, all in all, mate, I'm doing pretty well. And um, you know, it's a, it's a good weather in Sydney at the moment, summer's approaching. So any day you can get out, walk the dogs, you know, be out in the sunshine is a pretty good thing. But how about yourself, mate? How are you going? Mate, life is very good. I was just saying to you before, I feel like, to be honest, this feels like the, you know, one of the nicest stretches of the last couple of months for me. I think financially things have been challenging this year to, you know, to find our feet, my partner and I, when I've been, you know full debt, head down, ass up, chasing the dream, trying to make it happen. And it's not been financially fruitful enough yet that, you know, we can survive and and thrive with income from what I do. And, you know, for me, I've tried to find something that I can align with that. And I've actually been working a laboring job, which a couple of my mates would have a chuckle at because they know I'm not the most handy fella. Um, My old boy was probably well shocked when he heard that, you know, I'm not much help around the house, but it's been actually really good. I, I, I like breaking a sweat. I like being physical and, you know, 10, 11 hour days where you're, you're physical and you're just having a yarn and a bit of banter with the lads on site. And, you know, we build wedding marquees, which I didn't think would be so physically demanding, but they're big marquees, like just a heap of steel and timber. So I'm just carrying material all day. So I've been burning like four and a bit thousand calories at work. 
And so it's great, man. So I feel there's definitely something that comes from, we spoke about it before, when you're disciplined and you're doing what you know needs to be done and you're getting your house in order, it feels really rewarding. So it's it's been a great couple of weeks, man. I'm just in a great place. And, you know, for me now, I think when you have those big days on site, which I have the last two days, to then, you know, this morning wake up and go, and my job today is to sat, sit down and have a yarn with Hugo. That's a very good feeling. No, I love it, mate. You're, um, yeah, I was saying to you before, you're a bloody fit, active dude, which, you know, having, you know, had a bit to do with through other people with CF and, you know, I know it's, it's different for each person, but I was bloody blown away with, you know, the fact you've done three marathons and you seem to be running and hitting the gym most days and now doing a labor job. It's, um, it's pretty bloody awesome to see, but I know you spoke about it um, or you have spoken about it often about that sort of invisible illness part of things. Whereas, you know, sometimes you from the outside, I look at you, you go, fuck, you're a fit bloody dude. You're positive all the time. You're driven. You're a happy lad. Um, but often, you know, living with what you live in, live with like CF and what I've gone through, sometimes it's not always that outside. Um, it's not always the case, you know, things can be going, going on under the, under the surface. So I've, I find that very fascinating with you, mate, cause you definitely seem to be like kicking goals, you're fit, you're healthy, you're happy, but obviously it's not always been like that for you. Well, I appreciate that. And that's probably the thing that really intrigued me about your story is I just kept hearing, like I heard off deal. After I'd done the pod with him, he said, you know, we spoke about as, as two hosts. Oh, if you ever have a guest that you think would be great for the show, let me know, vice versa. And he said, mate, you have to interview a mate of mine, Hugo Tuvi. And then it was probably a week later. And then I'd seen the clips from that app. And I watched that clip again, the highlight from your after we deal with my partner, Soph, before. And we we're both like, wow, like this really hits the heartstrings. And then it was probably two weeks later, I was speaking to a mutual friend of ours, Kath Koshal, and Kath was like, you need to meet Hugo. He's just such a great guy and so inspiring. And I found myself back to your profile and I had a look and then I noticed that you're working with Gussie and I've had Gussie on the pod maybe two years ago now. But the thing that really stood out for me was seeing you speak and seeing the clips of you speaking and the photos of you in, you know, your old military uniform, you're a very healthy you know, handsome looking fella, you know, you've got a wife, you've got a job, you've got a life. And you think on the surface that like, oh, everything is operating really well in Hugo's world. But obviously, as you said, that's not always the case. So, you know, two cancer diagnoses and, you know, you're a survivor and, and a thriver. Talk to me about, you know, the, the cancer that you've had to face and, and how that come about in the first place. Yeah, no, thanks, mate. And I appreciate those um, those kind words, but you're spot on. It's, I guess, over the years, and I talk about this a lot, um, especially with the mental health side of things, you know, I've got so good at, you know, putting that mask, that front on. Um, and I actually used to do a potty called Behind the Uniform, which was that that mindset of we all wear that that uniform, whether it's me in the army, an actual uniform or a metaphorical uniform. But I found myself doing that all the time. And even today, I still do it you know, every now and then where you kind of put that front on and you often get, you you probably can get, you probably get this too, where it's like, you're, you're so optimistic and you're positive all the time. And how do you do it? And, and look, that's like, I like to think that is a big part of me, but then I think there are other parts that a lot of people don't see. Um, and the, probably the one person that does see the behind the scenes is my wife, Amber, who, who sees me when I'm at my worst or I'm angry or I'm upset or I'm, you know, you know, having a cry or whatever. Um, you know, she sees all that. Whereas 
a lot of people, especially those closest to my life, probably don't see that. And they just see me out and about socializing and just being a happy dude, which is unfortunately not always the case. Um, but as far as the cancer side of things goes, mate, it's, I'm um, happy to say like I'm cancer free at the moment, which is brilliant. Um, but it's taken a long time to get there. And I guess the, uh, the after the after effects of, of having the cancers, especially the bowel cancers left me in a place where, um, you know, I still have lots of issues, you know, parts of my quality of life isn't always great. As I mentioned before, I'm on this new treatment, which we can, we can chat about shortly, but, um, all in all, it's been about 10 years, pretty much, um, 10 years this year, 2013 was my first diagnosis, um, with testicular cancer. And then 10 years later, here I am just started some new treatment. So it's, um, it's been ongoing, um, which I think is a difficult thing because a lot of people that you speak to, and I'm very grateful that I'm cancer free, but you speak to a lot of people and you, you kind of, the first reaction is, Oh my God, that's amazing. So happy for you. And, and I don't want to diminish the fact that it's amazing to be cancer free. And I know there are a lot of people who might've been listening to this, who might be going through their own diagnosis and it's, it's bloody challenging, but I think the things you don't see is the impacts that cancer's had on my life and the major surgeries and the treatments and the things that I'm now have to live with for the rest of my life as a result of being cancer free, which um, is a tough one because you don't want to be ungrateful for the fact that, yep, I don't have cancer, but you still have days that are pretty difficult. So yeah, it's been 10 years, mate couple of different cancer battles and like I said the mental health stuff's been something that I've found probably the most challenging over the years um really having to kind of work through those things and I continue to work on it and I'm bloody far from perfect still see a psychologist still work with you mentioned before amazing people like Gus Warland and and just constantly try and improve it because I find myself as more than I'd like to still have those days where you're you're really down in the dumps you know um, you need, really need to pull yourself out of that hole, but, um, all in all, mate, it's, um, it's an ongoing, ongoing journey, um, for me. I know people, some people don't like the word journey, but for me, I definitely think it's uh, ups and downs and it'll probably continue to be that way for, for a number of years. Man, if you're willing to, I want to go a little deeper into that later, but I, I do want to go to your life just before the diagnosis or the first diagnosis with terminal, um, sorry, with testicular cancer tongue-tied there um what was life like before it how was your mindset like do you think that where your mindset is at now resembled that of your life pre-cancer or is a lot changed yeah look I think it, it's definitely changed you know at the time I was 21 um you know I had six months left of four years of pretty arduous military training so you know I'm living in Canberra you're 21 you're fit you're healthy um, you're about to graduate as a, a young officer in the Australian army. Um, you know, you're going out on weekends doing what young 20 year olds do. Um, and at that stage, I think, you know, a lot of people who have never really gone through significant health challenges, you kind of take your health for granted. Like you don't, you don't think too much into it, you know, what you eat or the importance of exercise or God forbid back then I'd never do stuff for my mental health like it just I didn't need to right I was just a young bloke in his 20s who just cracked on with life um and I think it's not until you're hit with that that news the diagnosis where things definitely do change but yeah before that mate I was a pretty chilled customer um you know I'd had issues as a kid going through some challenges with my health um but nothing as, as drastic as cancer and then I did lose a mate to suicide 
second year army training are probably my best mate at that stage. And that to that point, that was sort of the hardest thing I had to go through. Um, more grieving the loss of a good mate, understanding the, the significance of suicide, um, you know, those sort of things. But as far as my own health was concerned, like I was in a pretty good place. Um, I think that's what made it the hardest hard part was when you got told that you had advanced testicular cancer that had spread through your body, but I felt fine. And that's the hard part. It's not like I was really sick. It's not like when I went off for my bowel cancer symptoms, my bowels were playing up. I wasn't feeling well. My testicular cancer, outside of that small little lump on my testicle, I was passing, you know, 2.5K fitness tests that you have to hit a certain level. You know, we're going out field for a month at a time, digging trenches, you know, going out, hitting the piss on the weekends like young blokes do. And I, I felt healthy and fit. And I often say it was probably the, ironically, the healthiest and fittest I'd been in my life, yet I had cancer through my body. So it was a weird, um, weird moment, mate, to be literally that day waking up feeling normal a few hours later being told you've got cancer through your body that's almost the scariest thing though isn't it like how silent this thing can be and for so many guys it would just go unnoticed you know and and i'm sure and i know a big part of your work with you know your own foundation 25 stay alive has been around empowering people with the education to go and get the checks and and do the stuff that frankly is quite uncomfortable. Like I probably, I don't even know if I've ever spoken about this on the pod before, but probably like two or so years ago now, I was like, I'd, I'd heard a story similar to that of yours with a young guy who had testicular cancer. And I just thought, oh, I really have to bite the bullet and, and go get checked. And you know, that like nervous wait when you're sitting in the corridor of the doctors and you're like, old mate's about to feel my nuts in a second and yeah. I've got to make sure that I do not make eye contact with him yeah. in that check. And it's just kind of like, you're like, so how do we kick this off doc? You know, like what's the first measure? Do I just pull him down or, you yeah. know, you're hoping you're checking the air con thinking, fuck, I hope it's not too cool in here. <laughs> Mate, <laughs> 100%, stuff in your head. I think that there is the reason why a lot of blokes, especially young blokes put off going to see their doctor or, you know, they, they feel very awkward and uncomfortable having these conversations um, because it's just, it's not a normal thing to do. And it's, it's funny over the years, I've just become so used to talking about, you know, my bowel movements and going to the bathroom and testicles. I love good testicle chat. Um, you know, just talking about this stuff so freely because it's just so, it becomes so naturally to me, but I still don't, I, I sometimes forget that even my closest mates, sometimes when I'm talking about it, you see them feel a bit uncomfortable. Because for most people, it's not everyday conversation. You don't talk about how are your bowel movements this morning. You know, it's not, it's not a thing people often like talking about. Same thing with your testicles. You know, people walking in and having the doctor fill their balls is a bit of a confronting thing for a lot of people. Whereas for me now, I'd probably just walk in, take my, take my pants off, and I wouldn't think twice. Um, yeah. Or you know, earlier this week, you know, I've got a nurse with my bloody legs up, putting this rectal enema in my bum and putting this fecal matter in, in my ass, and it's like. I kind of just did it. You know, I'm just there chatting to the nurse. Oh yeah, that hurt a bit. Here we go. Whereas I don't realize that like for a lot of people, that'd be a very kind of confronting thing, you know, for walking sure. in, taking your pants off and having a, a young nurse, you know, she's probably in her mid twenties putting this thing up your bum. So it's a, it's a thing that I think I've become so used to it just being so open. Uh, and you're obviously a pretty open, open guy as well, but I forget that not everyone is, is as open as, as we probably are. I'll tell you what, I'm going to level you here. I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told on the pod before. Oh, good, mate. I like it. So I was probably 
oh, nine or 10 years of age. And, and every couple of years, I was pretty healthy as a young bloke, like first 18 years of my life with CF, despite a couple of diagnoses, I was really, you know, in good health for most of it. But every probably two years, they'd say, hey, can you come into hospital for two weeks? And we're just going to do what they'd call a bit of a tune-up. For those of you who don't know what a tune-up is, it's almost like a service for the car. You might not need it, but it's kind of worth, you know, worth doing it, just checking up on everything. And so I'd go in and they'd give me a little course of antibiotics and, you know, do some scans on my lungs and check my liver and do all those things. And this one particular time in hospital, they had a request of me that had not been asked ever before the nurse come into the room and my dad was there with me at the time. And she said, um, Brad, if you don't mind, we need a poo sample. And I was like, Oh, what's that for? And they're like, Oh, we just want to check to make sure everything's all good. And, and with cystic fibrosis, a big part of the complication for a lot of people is digestion. You have pancreatic insufficiency, so you don't produce digestive enzymes. So majority of the tablets, it used to be about 30 a day, I used to take 50 tablets a day, 30 of them would be digestive enzymes to digest the protein and fat that I eat. Um, now I've got a high dosage, so I only take about 10 a day. Um, but, you know, you have gut complications and my, my gut isn't too bad, as, but it's not also the best. So they just want to check these things and be sure. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do for that? And she's like, well, we're going to give you this tray and you just slip it inside the toilet seat and it will sit there firmly. And you just need to go to the bathroom in it. She said, but whatever you do, don't wee in it. And I was like, oh, okay, that's going to be a challenge. All right. So we go into like, there's one of those disabled toilets, the big ones. And I said to my old boy, I'm going to need your help here, mate. And he goes, yeah, no worries. And I'm like nine at the time. We go into this toilet. I put it down on the seat. I sit down and like, I managed to hold the wee in, but I've unleashed, I'm not kidding, the biggest shit of my life. And then I, and then I could not help it, but I just got so busting for a piss. I pissed all through it. I couldn't <laughs> help it. Now, when I tell you, Hugo, that I got off the toilet and me and my dad looked at the shit in this, in this tray. And it looked like the way it had sat, I don't, I don't know whether it was the way that the tray is designed. It looked like a fucking chocolate sundae from Macca's, like it swelled up <laughs> to a point. And it's the biggest thing you've ever seen. It honestly looked like it come out of fucking far lap. Oh God. And my dad goes, holy shit, mate, that's huge. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's just like, we need to get the piss out of it. So my old boy like is holding the tray, trying to tip the piss out. And like the shit is sliding from one end to the other. And he nearly lost it and recorded it. Like it was actually impressive to watch. Honestly, hands like Gilchrist, that bloke. <laughs> and we kind of like, we finally like flushed the toilet, I washed my hands. And dad goes, just check if the coast is clear. Cause we had to run it across the hall to the nurse's office. And I'm like, yeah, coast is clear. Let's go. We run it across the hall. And I just sort of tapped on the door and I said to the nurse, oh, I've got that sample for you. And she goes, oh, no worries, Brad. And she comes out and you should have seen the sheer look of horror in her face. when She's seen the size of it. And she goes, oh, you only need to do, to do one yeah, like size a of a 50 bit. cent piece. And I'm like, <laughs> well, here's all of this. <laughs> I can't return it. It's here now. But, but obviously, you you know, you would know nine-year-old boy, you're told to bloody do a sample, you give her the whole thing. <laughs> you just go, if, I, if I'm going, I'm going for gold, you know. So, I love that, mate. Well, I think we'll get along then, you know, early in the podcast, yeah. <laughs> we're already uh, opening up talking about shit. Um, you got to laugh about these things though, right? 100%, mate. No, that's gold. That's great. It's Well, you're right, until you experience that though, you're like, you don't know what to do, what to expect, you know. <laughs> and that's why it's so daunting for so many people, but 
to, to backtrack, you spoke about the lump that gave the indication that maybe there was something wrong with your testicles. Was that something that you picked up on and then had the awareness to go, oh, I should just get this checked? Yeah, look, mate, it is. But that being said, I did put it off for a while because um, like I was touching on you, I felt the fittest and healthiest I'd ever been. So I vividly remember it. Like the, the story you just told, you know, it's it's interesting how there are those times in your life that you just remember them so well because they're quite significant, you know, memories. Um, and for me, I remember it vividly. I'd have this, I always say like picture a frozen pea because everyone knows what a frozen pea is like. Picture that on one of your testicles. And that's literally what it was, but it didn't hurt. I knew it was there. Uh, every time I got out of the shower or whatever, I'd always know it. I'd always play with it. And I'd often just Google it. Um, you know, lump on testicle and I'd find like the least sort of severe thing I could find and be like, oh, well, that's all it is. It's a cyst. But, you know, I've never known the exact time of when I first noticed it. Um, however, I'd noted that what I know it was there for a while and probably over six months, it could have even been there for a year. Um, and that's the thing. It's, that's what caused the cancer to spread, um, is putting that off because it just gave the cancer time to spread and testicular cancer. It spreads upwards. So it was spreading to your abdominal lymph nodes, then your chest, your lungs, and eventually it spreads to your neck and then it goes up into your brain. Um, so it spreads up through your body. And for me, it was weird because I knew it was there. I knew that lump was there, but I, um. I didn't do anything about it. Um, and it was actually my old man that prompted me to to go to the doctor because I kind of brushed it off. And when I remember I called him, it was his birthday. Um, and I was in my army dorm in Canberra and it was kind of so awkward to even say it over the phone. I said, dad, I've got this, um, this little lump on my, my right testicle. Um, you know, what do you reckon? And he's like, mate, have you gone to the doctor? I said, oh, no, I haven't gone to a doctor. It doesn't really hurt. But I tried to kind of brush it aside and he said, mate, go to the doctor don't be an idiot. And it was kind of his words that I thought, you know, I was 21 at that stage. And I thought, yeah, actually, why aren't I going to the doctor? Exactly like you said, you know, you, it can be a bit awkward at the start. You walk in, pull your dax down as a feel around, but it's not that, you know, big a deal really. And the doctors see this all the time. And yeah, mate, it was my old man that prompted me to go to the doctor. And even then I walked in and the doctor said, oh, yep, I see the lump. He said, it's probably nothing. We'll send you off for an ultrasound. And then later that day, you get a call back and he says, mate, we need to send you off for a CT scan, but you've got testicular cancer. Um, and it's like, that's the, that, hearing that's the weird part because you're like, what? Like, what do you mean? I feel fine. Um, mm. But, you know, that's the importance. Like you said, go off to the doctor, better safe than sorry. We should all be having annual checkups. Even if you're feeling pretty good, you know, you'd, these doctors, these GPs, they see this stuff and a lot worse every day. And find a good GP, walk in there, feel comfortable, you know, do a full annual checkup. If you're a bloke and you've got anything weird down there with your testicles, it's such an easy thing to do. Uh, but as we know, a lot of young blokes, and I was one of those young blokes, we get bloody good at put it, pushing things up, pushing things to the side, brushing under the carpet, the old she'll be right attitude. And yeah. fortunately, my old man was the one who prompted me to, to go to the dock. I want to talk about him for a minute. I got a sense from listening to you on Bill's pod that you and your old man are pretty close. And that struck me because I'm very close to my old man. He's like one of my best mates. Talk to me about that relationship and how that served at the time. Yeah, mate. Like, I don't know. It's um, I think that bond between, um, you know, father, son, you know, it's, it's, I'm still very close with my, my mom and we've got a very close family, but that father, son relationship's really special. Um, and that always has been the case over the years, whether it's, you know, supporting the same footy team and, you know, debriefing the, the, 
the footy game on the weekend or, you know, every time I go back home, go out for a beer together and we've just got a beautiful relationship and it also, you know, I'd like to say a really close friendship, you know, it's like, you know, my dad would be one of my best mates. And I think that's a really special thing to have. And he was always the first person that I'd sort of call if I, you know, something could happen at work or if I had any issues or, you know, like I told him about my testicle, he was always that first person I'd speak to. And it's been that case over the years. And, um, you know, it's often, he's, he's been the one that would drop everything and, you know, fly over to wherever I was living at that point in time to the memories I have of spending months at a time in hospital and dad would, you know, I'd wake up from the hospital bed and look over and he's already sitting on the, the chair next to me reading the paper. He's made his fresh green smoothie in hospital and he's, you know, he would do that without fail, um, without, yeah, every, every, t- every day, every morning, you know, he would stay at our house interstate and it's, uh, it's a really special thing to have. But then it's also been difficult, I suppose, when, you know, he's often been the first person I've had to break new bad news to, um, you know, get a pretty emotional about it all because he's not really an emotional guy. Um, but I've seen him get emotional as a result of me. And then you kind of feel that sense of guilt that you kind of, you know, and we I talk about that often when you kind of, your family's going through that too. And for me, that's probably one of the reasons I've often put on a bit of a, a front is people like my old man and people closest to me. I hate the fact that I cause them pain and I'm seeing them get upset. So then I kind of put that, that front on and say, no, I'm fine. And then it's not until I'm by myself where I get really upset, emotional. And, you know, often there were times in hospital where I'd been, be crying most nights. Um, you know, and the only people that would see me are the nurses. I wouldn't even cry in front of Amber. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that it's a very special bond. But in a way, I think that can make it harder when, you know, I call him every day and there are some days I'm not doing well or I've got bad news and you have to break that to, to someone like my old man because we've, we're so close and I know he'll once again just drop everything he's doing and, and fly over to Sydney or wherever I'm living. Um, but I'm so grateful I have that, mate, because you're just saying your relationship with your dad. Look, I'm sure there are a lot of people that go through challenges and they don't have that family support. And I would hate to think what it's like going through what I've gone through or, you know, going through it, you've gone through and not having a supportive or really close family or parents. Or for me, I've had a, I've been with my wife almost 10 years. You know, she's been through the ups and downs, like not having that person. Um, You know, we're talking offline when I was starting this new treatment out and I'm in the spare room last night trying to put this enema up my bum and all this stuff. And she's coming in and putting the wet wipes down in the garbage bag and she's just supporting me. And I'm like, if I was just a single bloke by myself trying to do this, it'd be so hard. I'm sure you can uh, maybe relate to some of that, mate. It for sure. And, you know, it makes me emotional to talk about, but I, I just don't think, I just don't think I'd be here or well, if it wasn't for my parents, they just, they dedicated their life to making sure that I was healthy. I've got a younger sister too, who's really quite like, we're really tight, our family. And it, it's just the most special thing to look back on all those moments and and maybe luckily for me as opposed to you having to break that news to your family and to see the emotion on their face i wasn't you know i wasn't all here mentally at, like as a baby to see that in my parents as they got the news that i had cystic fibrosis and had to come to terms with that because the parents that i knew and, and do know still to this day, 
have just been always so positive and optimistic. I was talking about this with Sophie the other day. I was saying that I remember when I got diagnosed with liver disease at nine and because of how I remember hearing the words that mate, unfortunately, like you've got chronic liver disease, cirrhosis of the liver. And I remember just the minute that the doctor told me that I looked straight to mum and dad and you could just see they put on a really strong front. And so I felt calm and collected. And I remember driving home and, and I, I remember like vividly sitting in the middle seat in the back of the car on the way home. No one was on the way to Macca's for a little treat, but watching their body language, listening to their conversation, because for me, if they broke that strong, positive character, I knew that there was something to stress about, but they never let me see it. And so I'm very lucky that I, I believe that a lot of their hardship with coming to terms with the fact that my life was going to be different come in the very early years of my CF. But then, you know, the last couple, because there were some more um, visible challenges with the bleeding lungs and, and that stuff, it was really hard to see that. But it, my old man is, you know, sounds so similar to yours. He's, for me, like I've got a tattoo of the Hercules statue on my right arm. And that's for my dad, you know, and even the way that the statue looks down, you know, as, as though I'm looking up to it, you know, I've often looked at my dad as like my role model and the, the, the kind of man that I want to model myself on. And so as someone who comes from that generation where he's a tough bastard, you know, he never complains. He worked four jobs for a lot of years so that, you know, we had a good foundation to start from as a family, as my mum did as well. She worked really hard, but I just never really seen my dad's very loving and very caring. And he's like a big teddy bear, but I would never see my dad break down, you know, for me the last couple of years to see more so some of the, I think my dad's turned into a bit of a happy crier now. Like when I achieve something, you know, positive and I remember finishing my first marathon and seeing him pull the sunnies down and seeing him fog up and that, that gets me. It's, it's very hard for me to even keep, keep the sweaty eyes off right now as, as I talk about it, that I know exactly what you mean, brother, when you say how grateful we are to have that support. It just makes the biggest difference. Mate, no, thanks for sharing that. And it's, I completely can um, relate to a lot of that. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and it's something that, you know, I look at that relationship and like to think that, you know, when I, have a kid one day um you know you can like you said the role model is such a, a brilliant a brilliant way to, to frame it is 100 my dad would be my role model as well and someone you look up to and it's like you know if i can be that same father and i would hate to know what say your parents what it would be like when you've got this young baby from basically from when they're born all through their early years like you said you can't really remember those years but as a parent you know that little baby's everything and you're watching them go through doctor's appointments and you know, different, you know, treatments and this, that, and the other. And it's just like a bloody, you know, going through the, the cycle of, of hospitals and all sorts of stuff as a parent, that must be so bloody hard. And then you kind of, when you grow up, you kind of respect and appreciate your parents. It's so much more, I'm sure because of that. And then one day, I'm, I don't know if, you know, you want to have a kid yourself one day, mate. I think I heard you sound a yeah, podcast that you, you did or definitely do, but I think, you know, imagine you're going to be such a fantastic dad yourself from not only what you've gone through but then the relationship you've had with your dad and the appreciation that you have for for your parents and what it would be like for for them I'm sure when you're going to be a dad one day you'll be able to kind of take that on board and 
no doubt be a fantastic dad. So, mate, that's awesome to hear. Really good to hear, mate. I cannot wait for the time. I often talk about it with Soph and she comes from a big family too. So it's something we're really excited for. Speaking of families and, and creating our own, you spoke, you know, and you speak often so beautifully about your, your wife, Amber. At what stage in this journey did you meet her? Was it pre-diagnosis or it sounds like it was just a little bit post? Yeah, mate, just a bit post. I just finished all my chemo. I was 22 back in Adelaide, did about four or so months of chemotherapy, you know, lost all the hair and um, was pretty crook for a, for a chunk of that time. And I remember I'd kind of just recovered from that, um, had a major surgery, uh, removal of my abdominal lymph nodes, recovered from that. And I was just starting to, hair was starting to grow back, you know, starting to feel confident and well enough to start going out again and socializing and living a, a, a life like a lot of young 22-year-old blokes live. And I was um, just going through all of that. And it was very early days, basically. I was, I'd like to say it's a romantic story because Amber's a nurse of, she was my nurse in hospital administering bloody chemo or something. And we fell in love and it was, you know, one of those stories, you bloody write a movie, a book about it or a movie. But unfortunately it was, um, well, not unfortunately, but it was more the classic case of meeting at the pub and uh, being a bit pissed and cracking a few jokes. <laughs> uh, and that's honestly how we met. That being said, we had a very sort of early on, we had a beautiful connection in the fact that I was a pretty vulnerable young bloke who had just gone through all of that. And I found out that Amber was sort of early days of her nursing. And then straight away, I sort of said, oh, I've got the utmost admiration for nurses. I've had some beautiful nurses over the years. And then we kind of opened up and connected. And I felt like I could all, all of a sudden be more open from the very early days of almost just meeting Amber and saying, by the way, I've recently just gone through all this sort of stuff with my health, blah, 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 blah. And I felt like I, I was comfortable enough to be open with her, which was a really beautiful thing because there are a lot of people that I probably wouldn't have been able to share all that with, especially straight away. So I think there was probably that beautiful connection early on where the fact that Amber for a job was looking after sick babies as a, you know, neonate um, emergency nurse in hospitals. And I just finished going through this treatment and surgeries and kind of, we connected it. I don't know, meant to be maybe one of those moments. And here we are, you know, got married last year and, um, you know, she's been, been been by my side ever since, really, and um, it's a really special thing. So, yeah, mate, it's been a something that I'm very grateful for, and I assume when this podcast comes out, speaking of um, parenting and everything like that, Amber's uh, we're actually also expecting a, a baby. <laughs> I haven't even haven't made that public yet, so um, it's uh, an exciting thing. So we're expecting a little boy in um in April next year, mate. So it's a, a very special thing with everything we've gone through and. Speaking about my dad and relationships with parents and all that sort of stuff. So the fact that we're uh, we're expecting our own little boy after, you know, we're trying for quite a while and it just happened. We're uh, we're pretty pumped with that. So there you go. It's kind of, you know, reporting bloody breaking the news story live on your podcast, mate. <laughs> mate, that's so exciting. Congratulations. You must be absolutely stoked. Yeah, mate. So stoked. Like it's um one of those things that you I probably didn't know enough about fertility and the fact that people can struggle to conceive and, you know, the fact that I'm missing a testicle and I've got frozen sperm and I've had, you know, 10 bowel surgeries and I've had all this stuff with my health. I did start to doubt myself and maybe that I, you know, couldn't conceive naturally and all this sort of stuff. And we tried for a while. Um, and when it happened, I remember the Amber's GP sort of told her, she said, look, just try not stress about it. I know it's easier said than done, but like, 
you know, these things can take some time, just, just let it happen. And it wasn't long after saying that we both kind of didn't let it consume every, every moment we, um, you know, we, we conceived naturally and it was a very wow. special thing. So mate, something that I definitely wasn't expecting, like I said, having the frozen sperm and, you know, potentially thought I had to go down that path. Um, here we are. And, um, we only recently found out the gender and everything, mate. So, um, you know, it's one of those things we talk about gratitude, um, you know, puts things in perspective, you know, if all of a sudden, even though I'm on this new treatment and I still have ups and downs with my health, like that's my priority now. And I'm just so excited for it. And if I'm having a bad day, I just have to think about that sort of part of my life and it puts me in a good mood again. So it's funny how your life, you hear it all the time when parents say, wait till you have a kid one day, your life, you know, everything just shifts and that they're your priority. Um, I can already experience a bit of that now, which is bloody awesome. Man, it's, there's so many special things to touch on there. I want to go to Amber first because this is the foundation of the future for you guys is your relationship together. It takes a special person, doesn't it, to really back you when you're going through all of this stuff. And I know for myself personally, I've not been through anything as, as scary as you have. And, you know, that, that cancer word can be really harsh and really scary when you hear it. And, you know, I have so much admiration for my partner. So I just, the, the way that she supports me and, and loves me and is just so open to everything that happens within my life and my CF, I just, you know, I, I can't help but just respect how much strength she has personally to be able to look at it and, you know, and not stress about the future or fear about the future, but to just love me unconditionally, you know, for Amber, has there been some, some tough times and has it, you know, obviously working in that space, I can imagine that she's a little bit more conditioned to it than most, but man, it just sounds like she's so courageous and so loving. Mate. No, absolutely. And sounds like your partner as well. I'm sure, you know, she's been through so much her experience, what you've gone through and, and also the fact that, you know, what you're living with and, and I think having that person in your life and I often say, and I'm sure you can also appreciate this is something like any chronic illness or a cancer or, um, you know, these sort of things, they impact so much more than just you. And, um, you know, it has that ripple effect and those that are closest to you often, it can really impact them. And yeah, look, I, I don't know how Amber's, you know, been so strong over the years because like I said, she's seen me at my worst you know, she's been the one that, you know, is in the waiting room from, you know, major operations. She's the one that's by my side in the hospital. She's the one that sees all the behind the scenes stuff, yet she's always got that brave, you know, front. She's always so strong um, and I rely on her so much, but it's such a beautiful thing. And I, I try and tell her as much as I can, how much she means to me and how grateful I am for her. But there are times where I almost feel a bit guilty in a way that, if I'm having a really bad day, uh, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a lot of discomfort. My headspace isn't great. I might take some of that frustration out on Amber. And it's one of, you know, you hear it a bit. Sometimes the people that you love or mean the most to you, often they're the ones that sometimes you take your frustration or what you're going through out on them. And that's purely because she's the one that's here and she sees that. But then the fact that she can still remain so like calm and loving through all that um, is a really beautiful thing. So mate, yeah, she's a, she's an amazing person. Um, I think people that know her or know us probably don't appreciate how much she's actually done for me over the years. 
like the things that people wouldn't even think about, you know, that she just does. Um, and she's just got that beautiful, caring nature. And, you know, we don't share, she's not as public as I am, but I don't share some of, I don't share most of that out of respect for, for her and nor do I need to, but like there are things behind the scenes that she would do for me um, that's phenomenal. And, you know, I don't think she gets enough credit almost that these things that I've gone through and continue to go through, she's gone through just as much or if not more because she's had to be the pillar of strength to keep me going. Um, And I think one of the reasons that I have kept going is because of someone like Amber, you know, it gives you that motivation to keep going. And I've had times where I haven't really wanted to keep going. I've kind of just been over it. I've been in pretty dark places and then have someone like Amber to just give me that motivation. Um, It's a really beautiful thing. And the fact that now hopefully we can start a beautiful family together just makes me so excited because I know she'll be the best mum and, and hopefully I'll, um, you know, be an all right dad. So no, mate, I love talking about Amber and it's a really special, special relationship. Mate, I've no doubt you're going to be an incredible father. And you know what? One of the things that I've said to a lot of my mates, because Soph and I have only been together for, it was actually 11 months yesterday. So, and we celebrate every month. We're one of those couples that every month we go for a little coffee walk date. We, we make a deal out of it. I love it. And, mate. and I think a big part of the reason why I do that is because I, I often thought I'd never find someone who was willing to back me long-term and, and that used to hurt a little bit, you know, like, will I find someone who's, who's there for me through the ups and the, the downs and is willing to ride what can sometimes be a bit of a roller coaster with me. And when I found Soph, we clicked so quickly. And I was talking to a couple of my mates about it the other day. And, and one of my mates in particular was just saying to me, fuck, I'm, I'm really proud of how you've, you know, how you handle your relationship. And he, he was given so for a lot of credit. And I was saying that I think when you've been through some health challenges and you realize how precious life is, and we spoke about, you know, being a young guy and maybe taking the health for granted and being a little bit complacent about life itself and the opportunity and gift that it is when you've been through some of those challenges and through the fire, you have a finer appreciation for what you actually want out of your life and what's really important. And so for me, I think it's been somewhat, I say effortless, whilst we put in a lot of effort, it's been really effortless for Soph and I, because I I believe that, you know, because of both of our experiences, we just know what we want. And when you get that sense of love and like deep care, it just means everything like all the other bullshit of the the drama and you know, like the, the silly things just don't matter at all. It's just, we love each other. We care for each other. This is the direction we're heading in. We're going to do it together through the ups and downs. Like we've got each other's back and that is a special thing. And, you know, I'm sure you can attest to that too, that. I love that, mate. I love it. And you've, um, how, how did you guys meet? So I was, um, actually, I laughed about this a bit, a bit with Dill the first date. You would have heard the singlet story. Um, <laughs> chose the, the wrong attire. Um, yeah, mate, love it. Will, will it. will it worked in the end. But <laughs> we made, I'd actually, to be honest with you, it kind of happened when it needed to happen because I'd just gotten back from a solo trip over to the US. I spent a week in LA, a week in New York, just exploring by myself. I, I needed to, I was at a point in which, oh, I'd gotten, whilst I'd had some good progress that year in 2022, 
I was just struggling a little bit, like to find my feet with the career and to really move it in the right direction. And my old man, who, as I mentioned, was, you know, my best mate, he was moving up to Queensland and, and whilst I didn't need to, I'd sort of given him my blessing to go. Cause we'd lived together for a couple of years, him and his amazing partner, Karen and my little dog, and they were moving up to Queensland to, you know, have a change of scenery for themselves and, you know, set up retirement life. And I just thought, you know, it's, it's going to be a change for me because I'm going to have to move out of the, this place that we're in. And, and maybe it's time for me to go out and stand on my own two feet and, and have quite a different experience and really try to push my career. And so I was actually planning to move to London. And I thought that's a pretty big move, you know, to move over to the other side of the world by myself without any real security or like opportunity to walk into. So I thought I'm going to go take a trip by myself for two weeks overseas and just spend some time by myself in another space, in another country exploring and just figure out what the right move for me is. Yeah, love So that. I went over and one of my real reflections, I think I'm never really alone, Hugo. Like I've got a lot of really close mates and close family that I don't ever spend too much time in solitude. solitude. And so being away on this trip, not knowing anyone, I spent a lot of time by myself reading, writing, journaling in between my little day trips and expeditions and found myself one morning in, in New York, just sitting at a cafe, having a coffee. And I'd been for a run that morning. It was a really good start of the day and just sitting there journaling about sort of what I want from my life and what's really important to me. And I couldn't help but feel like the whole trip, I was a little bit lonely and I was like, oh, when I'm at home, I spend a lot of time with the people I love, but I also love my own time. And, and it wasn't uncomfortable. I wasn't uncomfortable in my solitude, like mentally, but I was like, Oh, I really want someone to enjoy my life with and to spend my life with. And I realized for me how important my environment's been. Whilst I always put a lot of emphasis on having purpose-driven work and having my health in order and having my family around me, I was like, my environment in the space that I exist in, is really important to me. And a big part of that is my people. And I thought I'm about to move over the other side of the world. And, and being a social guy, I had no doubt that I'd meet a group of people that I could, I could spend good time with and have a community, which I think is really important for us all as human beings. But oh, I'd love to have someone that I can build a life with, create a family with that can be, you know, my person that I can confide in. And I got home and it was, I think I'd been home for two days. I was sitting on the lounge and watching a bit of Netflix on a Saturday night. I'm pretty sure I was eating a Sunday and, you know, just having a bit of a fat night at home by myself with a dog. And I was just scrolling through Insta and I just seen this photo pop up and I just seen this smile that just caught my eye. And I thought, oh my God, who is that? Like, what a stunner. And I was like, I'd never seen her before. So I clicked on her profile, it was on private. And I was like, I've got to follow this girl. So I followed her. She followed me back a couple of minutes later. And I, ah. was just, I looked and she hadn't posted for five years. And I thought, this girl's an enigma. Like, she's a bit of a mystery. Like, who's, who doesn't post on Instagram for five years? <laughs> yeah, I like it. She followed you back two minutes later, though. Yeah, she was straight onto it. Um, <laughs> she reckons I was keener than she was, but... Ah, You wasn't um, mucking around by the sounds of it. <laughs> I flicked her a message straight away and I just knew... I knew I had to be quick because I'm like, this girl's not posted for five years. She's put up this gorgeous photo. She's not going to be on the market for long. And sent a message, 
quite confidently, but I was absolutely packing shit at home thinking there's no way in the world I'll get a reply from this. And the next morning we'd organized the date, went on a walk date and just, we hit it off. And it's, it's crazy looking back now in hindsight, because we, we spent so much time together in the first two weeks, but about two weeks in, we'd been flying and just having such a great time. And I said, why don't you come over, stay the night at my place? And my dad and his partner live here too. So I'm like, you'll meet my dad and his partner. If you're okay with that, if you're comfortable with that, but come over, they're going out for dinner. I'll cook you dinner. We'll have a bit of a movie night. You can stay the night. And then the next morning we'll go get a coffee. She's like, great. So she come over and we laugh about it all the time. So my old boy, Ben, a great bloke, but also a bloody dickhead, threw me <laughs> under the bus big time. He's making a cup of tea in the kitchen. And my nan and pop live below me. And he goes, I bumped into your nan in the hallway, mate. And she said that um, you're going to come down to see her tonight. But I said, maybe not his girlfriend's over. And I'm just like, did he just say girlfriend? And I'm like, oh, yeah, no worries. I'll, um, I'll talk, to her. talk to her tomorrow. And then when dad and his partner went out for dinner, I'd cook soap dinner. We sat down. And as we we're getting up off the table, she goes, so. And I go, I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> the old boy dropped the, the big word. I said, instead of him asking for me, why don't you forget that this happened? And I'll ask you later tonight at some point. We'll make it a surprise. And cause I was planning to do it anyways. Like we'd gotten on so good and I was like, oh, I love this woman. She's the best. How good I never that? want to spend another day without her. And so later that night I made her, a, we both love a peppermint tea. So I made her a cuppa and I think we had a couple of Anzac Bickies in the house. So I said, do you want a tea and some Bickies? And she's like, yeah, I'd love that. So I bought her over a Bicky. I sat down next to her. She just dunked a Bicky in the tea and taken a bite. And I turned to her and said, so, and she goes, not now I've got a mouthful of biscuit. <laughs> So I think I asked her about 10 minutes later and uh, got the yes. And man, to be honest, it's funny because she ended up staying the whole weekend. And I think we've spent one or two nights apart since. So she basically just never left. Partly because I didn't let her. One of those perfect uh, love stories, mate. You know, you're the the sort of the love at first sight almost. But you've, um, yeah, I love the fact that when you kind of get older and gone through it, you've gone through and you've had your life experiences, you kind of like, when you know, you know, and you're, you're in that situation where it's like, you know, why, why waste time? Like if, if we're both feeling the same, we're both in this situation, it doesn't matter if you've been together for, for 10 years or a year, um, especially what, what you've gone through. You're like, why not? Why not move in together? Why not, you know, hopefully spend the rest of our lives together. And I think that's beautiful, mate, because I think often people think you have to be with someone for a certain amount of time before you move in, then you get the dog, then you have to, be engaged for X amount of time before, you know, it's just like, there is no right or wrong. If you, if you're with someone, you love them, then go for it, mate. So that's beautiful to hear. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's funny. I was, um, I was talking with Denham Hitchcock, the investigative, or I should say former investigative reporter recently about coming on the pod. He's had an exceptional career, but he's now retired and Denham's still a, a young, healthy, you know, strapping lad. He's got a, a little family of his own now. And, you know, I wondered when I first heard that he retired, you know, I wonder why he's hung the boots up. And I read one of his posts where he'd released a statement and I think he'd been on Sunrise to talk about his retirement because he worked with Channel 7. And the post read that, you know, he said, in my long career, I've interviewed a lot of good people who have fallen on really hard and unfortunate times and circumstances. And the one lesson that I've learned and come away with is that time waits for no one. 
and I think that's such a such an important and meaningful message that we often don't realize that until we've experienced some hardship or a life realization in which we've gone man, this is not a dress rehearsal. One of my favorite quotes is um, Confucius quote that every man lives two lives. The second begins when they realize they have one. Mm. I know that you'd relate with that. And, and I just think far out, you're so right. Like why wait for anything? Why, why wait to make sure that it's societally, like society accepts the fact that we're moving at this pace or I'm supposed to do this by this age you have to be the master of your own kingdom and you have to set the sails when it's right for you. Exactly, mate. I love it. It's um, And you're right. If you can then impart that wisdom without going through what you've gone through or what I've gone through, but you can still have the same life lessons. It's like, well, how good's that? And it's, um, yeah, I often chat to Amber about this, like how it's, you know, where on our very unique timeline, which a lot of people um, probably don't go on the same timeline that we've gone through the last 10 years. Um, but you know, we've got some exciting news on the way with the kid, you know, we've, we've made our little plans on when we want to move back to Adelaide and all this sort of stuff. But I think early on, I used to get quite, especially when I was going through some pretty significant health challenges and I'm sure you can probably appreciate this too, is that the, the whole social media of you, you, I feel like I'd, I, for a while I'd get into this trap of, I'd go on social media and I'd be in hospital and I felt like my life was kind of on pause and these people were, you know, out buying homes and getting promoted at work and going on these amazing holidays overseas and living these fantastic lives. And then I'd kind of just be, you know, watching my 10th TV show on my laptop in hospital, feeling sorry for myself. And I feel like that was pretty damaging and detrimental. And then Ams and I actually only spoke at this recently, how it's just like everyone follows these different timelines and this is our timeline. And it doesn't matter if you, want to have kids or if you don't want to have kids and if you have them at this age or you get married at that age or you buy a home then and follow your timeline and I think I've got so much better at that now that when I see someone's post on social media and it's old matters or LinkedIn and they've got a promotion it's like I generally go mate buddy congratulations I feel happy for them whereas in the past I've been guilty of kind of feeling that bit of that sense of jealousy and that whole like you know shit I wish that was me or what am I doing in my life or I think now I've kind of really I'm happy that I have transformed that to now feeling really happy for people that are going through their own timeline, um, which I think is a really important thing. I think I've had to remind myself on that fact that, you know, because I've, I've experienced a little bit of that financially the last couple of years, like I left a lucrative career that I'd built a foundation in to pursue a dream that had no evidence. You know, I believed in something with no evidence. Ultimately I believed in myself and I had plenty of evidence to show that, I could fucking, you know, go through the fire and come out the other side. But this idea of being a podcast host, it's like that guy in his twenties, like Dylan, I spoke about it, that meme of, you know, blokes in their twenties starting a podcast. Like it's, it's such a trend <laughs> and you know, who was I to believe that I could be someone who'd done this for a living and who was I to believe that I could be a keynote speaker for a living. And, and that's proved challenging whilst I've never lost self-belief. I don't have the financial evidence to back that yet but the thing i've had to remind myself is you know when i was 23 i bought a house but i was unhappy when i was 23 i had a career that was moving in the right direction but i felt no sense of meaning or fulfillment and so for each of us it's different and i know mm. people who work in my former career that love it and get so much from it like like in terms of the meaning and the purpose as well as the financial benefit and that's amazing. Mm. But I had to remind myself that I'm a different cat. 
yeah. I am not that person. I'm not the same as him. I don't operate the same as her. I'm a, I'm a unique individual. And whilst I may be a little bit behind financially at 27, at 47, there's plenty of people who go, fuck, I've just been doing the wrong thing for the last 20 years. And then they change and then they have a bit of a midlife crisis or they have to, you know, flip things on its head and change their direction. I kind of got that out of the way a little bit early, or at least I hope so. And only time will tell. Mate, hundred percent. And I think you're spot on. And you know, you hear it all the time that people think that this extra bit of money is going to make them feel better. And it might for a small amount of time, but that doesn't really last long. And they want something else and they want a bigger promotion or a bigger house or a bigger, you hear it all the time, right? And obviously you want enough to be able to live a, comfortable life and you know have the necessities that you need to to live that life you want and yep i definitely agree with that but you know that whole purposeful thing and waking up in the morning and loving what you do and to take it to the next level i'm sure you've done it with your public speaking and the the podcast and the amazing guests you've met and the people you help like that's the biggest thing that i've found that i've probably underestimated the feeling you get from helping other people and you know, it's the reason why people volunteer. Um, you know, it's like Frank Reisman's helper theory. You know, when you help others, it actually helps them more than it helps you. And it's not until you start down that path where you truly realize and you take it to the next level and you might realize you've maybe saved that person's life where you think, fuck me, like there's not too many people that wake up in the morning and say, I've potentially saved that person's life from that podcast or that, you know, keynote speech or whatever. And you get those feel good stories and you go, I would not change that or trade that for anything. Um, that's the powerful stuff that makes you keep going the why, the purpose. Cause it's like, if you can do something you love, but then help others and even potentially save lives, it's like, that's a pretty bloody awesome thing. And I'm sure you've, you know, experienced some of that where you've finished a talk or had a podcast and you've got this random message in your Instagram, you know, message request and you open it up and you've just completely changed this person's life for whatever reason. And you think, how cool is that? I don't even know that person and I've just changed their life. I had one, this, had one this morning and, you know, it was, I said to so, fuck, that's a great feeling. You can't shake how good that feels no. to know that. And, you know, just to know that you've had some sort of impact in, you know, inspiring them to take the first step in the many that they will take. Let's talk about that, sharing your story. And, mate, I, I, I've loved listening to you share your story. You've got such a gift and you're so good at it. I wonder where that first started for you though, because at some point, like you said, you know, you, you're facing these battles and these challenges. And then there's just this inclination to, as you said, want to do a bit more, want to serve other people. So when was your first opportunity to, to either get on stage or get on a pod? Mate. So it actually, it first started actually through speaking to my psychologist. And this was when I was, I'd kind of before then shared part of my my testicular cancer story through um, written means and you know a blog or a you know someone's website or stuff like that um but then I was chatting to my psychologist and I was in a pretty dark dark stage of my life going through a lot and um she could tell I was struggling a lot and it was she recommended that I use what I've gone through and try to look at it in a positive way. And I remember her saying at the time saying, look, I know that's easier said than done. I know that you're not going to see that now, but just, just realize that, you know, there's opportunity from this and have you thought about, you know, sharing some of it and realizing that there are some people that can be, you know, benefit from this. And 
it was that little sort of that little baby step of okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a bit more open and sharing it to to friends, to family, um, to a small little charity bowel cancer charity group in Adelaide. And you know, I don't know if you remember the first time you've you've done a, a your first proper public speaking gig, uh, especially when it's your story. I remember I was you know reading a page you know i'd been invited back to my school and it was like a house dinner at my school and i remember i was so scared um i was like shaking as i was reading it and i was like going to this speech like written line by line you know reading a whole speech and i was like shaking and i got this round of applause at the end and the people came up and said thank you so much for sharing your story and that was that first experience of proper putting myself out of my comfort zone standing up there in front of an audience being vulnerable, my old school, sharing that story. And I felt that buzz at the end of it where I had these people come up to me. And I, if I was in the audience then and I saw that speech now, I'd probably go, Jesus Christ, I'd almost probably cringe it compared to where I am at now and how much, you know, over the years, you just become so used to doing it. But even back then, I remember there'd be dads that would come up to me and they'd say, thank you so much, mate. It's so important for these young school kids to hear that. And thank you for sharing your story. And I remember leaving that dinner, calling my old man up, you know, calling my mum up and I almost felt so proud and I had this buzz and I'm like, fuck, I love this. And it's almost since that moment of, you know, sharing it for the first time in front of an audience at my old school, which once again was triggered by my psychologist kind of encouraging me to, to do so. It was when I had that almost that light bulb moment of, you know what, I can, um, I understand now why people start charities and I understand why people turn adversity into a positive and the bowel cancer charity that I was the first charity I connected with in Adelaide, the Jody Lee foundation, Nick Lee started it because his wife died of bowel cancer. And, you know, he used that absolute tragedy of losing his wife to bowel cancer and creating his own charity after his wife's name and, and turned that into to his passion and his why and his purpose. And now I, I kind of got that why people do that. You know, it's like Gus Wallen and I'm a, you know, proud ambassador for gotcha for life. And, why Gus started Gotcha for Life, same concept. And why if anyone starts a charity or a podcast or, you know, the doing, helping others is through often through their own adversity. And so anyway, it was that realization part um, where I thought, hang on, this is something that I actually, not only do I enjoy it, I can see that it's going to actually help people. And ever since then, I've um, done more of it. And I think what I've really, I guess, my, my, my kind of what I've kind of got over the years. And I think you'll probably from listening to some of the stuff you do is that people love something they can relate to and anyone can sort of stand up there and give like a polished, you know, polished Ted talks that they've practiced, you know, hundreds of times and they've got that absolutely down pack. But I think people love rawness. They love vulnerability and they love to be able to relate. And I think that's what I've really got out of over the years is that, if I stand up in a hundred hundred tradies at a construction site, you know, and I get up there and I'm just myself, I'm just a, a normal young bloke, you know, and often it's that straight away someone can relate to me. You go, yep, I'm still in the army. I've gone through this. Um, I'm a young, relatable bloke. You know, here's what I'm going to talk about. I think people really appreciate that side of things. And so over the years, that's what I've tried to do. You know, I've every, not, yeah, every presentation is different. Um, every podcast I'm on, like even this one, I always end up talking about different stuff, which I've already done this podcast. And I love that because you never know where your mind's going to go to. And 
Yes, I've got photos that I talk to, and yes, it will follow a general timeline of, of what I've gone through, but I always talk about different little stories or things that pop into my head, and I love that. You know, There are times where I can't pick where I just get emotional, and um, even that's bloody awesome that there are some times when I've got so emotional that I've almost can't even get through the next sentence, and I've really had to like wipe back the tears and have a glass of water, and but that adds to it. Um, people love that side of it. So I don't know if you've experienced similar, mate, but I, um, soon as I started, felt that bloody, you know, that feeling that it gave me. Um, and I love it. So you seem like you're probably similar, mate. It's funny because Kath said to me, I feel like you and Hugo are very similar and listening to you say that then and talk about that. We are very similar cats. It's been much the same for me. I, I think the first time I, I was actually thinking about it just then, the first time I've ever, I'd ever shared my story, I might, may have been like 14 and there was this little documentary that was put together for, um, you know, following the journey of a few people with chronic illness that I'd done years and years ago. And like, I often forget about that and it just takes a memory to spark it up. But my first talks were um, to raise money for my, my marathon. And I remember the first one I ever done, I got invited to the night before the run. I'd, I'd done like new stuff and I'd shared my story on the pod before. And, you know, the first time I ever shared my story on this, it's like you said, cringeworthy to listen back to the amount of ums and buts and times I had to stop because I was getting emotional talking about yeah. my family. I listen back to it now and I'm like, oh, I sound so unpolished. But it's what made it obviously very significant at the time. And I believe that vulnerability serves as a bridge versus human beings, we really connect on vulnerability. Definitely, mate. And I am so similar to you where there is a little bit of a guide that I go to around four particular moments in my life and the lessons that I've taken from them personally that I share on stage. But there's always something random that pops into my head that I, I run with. And I'm such an emotional cat that I'm a I'm about a dollar ten favorite to, to break down into a couple of tears do, on stage, mate. I, I'm similar. Do you find have you done a um like one of your you know big talks with um with Soph in or your dad you know in the audience? And I'd be interested. I'm I'm sure you find that when they're there, it just makes you so much more emotional. Yeah, I I did one. The first one I did with Soph was the biggest talk I've ever done, which was at the start of this year at an event called Humankind. And it was, it was really funny because I got called in last minute to do this event at Luna Park in Sydney. It was a three-day summit they had. The first two days were a bunch of keynote speakers. And the last day was a bunch of like comedians, like Jim Jeffries headlined the comedy and a oh, um, bunch of musicians. It was a really cool event put on by the winning group in Sydney. And so I got caught in last minute. Um, Cooper Chapman, I don't know if you know Cooper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I do know. Coop gave me him. a call and said, mate, there's a spot. I'm here with the organizer. Do you want it? And I'm like, bloody oath, I do. Put me down. So we went up and we'd done it for AIM. It was for, you know, not-for-profit company AIM. And I went and I realized that when I got there on the Thursday that I was speaking at the same time on a different stage to Wim Hof, who was the headliner of the whole thing. Oh. <laughs> so I'm like, nobody is coming to see me. But I had Soph with me. I had one of my best mates, Joey, and Joey's a videographer, so he was going to film it. And I thought, if nothing, I get some great showreel footage from this. But thankfully, I think much, much of it was out of pity. The staff all stayed to listen to me. Oh, I agree. Because good, like everyone else was at Wim Hof. And the first thing that plays at the start of my keynotes at the moment is 
at the start of the year, I released an episode of the pod. I'm sure you might've seen the clip on socials where I wrote my own eulogy. Yeah. that. And that's a really emotional clip. And I get very upset in it and very emotional and, you know, for good reason. But I play that at the start. And the first question I ask, basically the first words that I say is, you know, what makes a 27 year old man write his own eulogy? And the crowd is already crying before I speak. So it makes, I think when you see emotion in other people, naturally as humans, we then get emotional and it really breaks down our walls. And it's always really hard for me to see Soph in the audience. And I've done a couple of pods. We're very early in our relationship. Dylan Mullen, who's a, a great man. He's got the Life, Money, Love podcast. Dill had me on the show and it's the first time I'd ever really spoken in real depth and vulnerability about how I'm important and special Soph had been for me and oh man I, I broke down and and I'm an emotional cat at the best of times but it is really special and and for me it's often the the drive the motivator that you know I, I get to help other people through this and you know I also it's nice to feel as though you're doing your family proud you know when you have those moments and you get to to step on stage and there's been a couple of exciting this ones this year with the, that big event. And I've done parliament house and a few other things where you, you go, you know, for all the hardship, here we are helping other people. And it's nice to be able to do that with your family along for the ride. And you can be, um, you know, proud of yourself too, which I find that's something that, you know, there's nothing wrong with being proud of yourself. And I think like when you've gone through what you've gone through, and you finish your talk or you're, you know, chatting to people at the end of it and you're driving home with like a bit of a smile on your face, you feel great, but also it's kind of like, you know, I've heard you say before, and I'm all about this, you know, there is so much of, of your life and <clears throat> my life. And a lot of people may be listening to this. There's so much of your life you can't control. Um, but the, you know, the parts that you can control and you're, you know, you're choosing to stand up on that stage, you're choosing to do this podcast, you know, that's what you have control over. Um, but then it's, you don't have to do it either. Like no one's, no one's, you know, you don't, you, certain parts of your story and my story, you don't, you don't have much of a choice. You know, you're in that hospital, you're having that treatment, right? It's for your health. It's so you can bloody live on this planet, but then for you to choose and for me to choose to then use that to help others or stand on that stage or do this podcast, you know, that's a really powerful thing, but I think it's important that you reflect on that and actually be proud of yourself to go, fuck, like that's pretty awesome because not everyone in your position or my position might have, they might not choose that same path and they might not, you know, use that, um, you know, best making the best of that bad situation. So that's what I love in what I'm doing. And that's why I love when I've been looking into your story and I, you know, see your posts and stories pop up. I love that part of it, that you're choosing to make good of this, you know, the cards you're dealt, which I love. You have to, right. And, and I would be interested to hear your perspective on this because for me, I was actually thinking about this recently when I think about, resilience and how that trait plays its role in my life. I am my most resilient when I face a personal health challenge, a bit of a health crisis. And the reason I've, I've figured out why I am so resilient in that time is because for one simple reason, you have no other option. You either throw your cards in or you go, this is the hand I've been dealt and I'm going to bunker down and push all the chips into the middle and play with everything I've got. And there's days where I'm going to bluff and I'm going to put a smile on my face and put the shades on and, and make out that things are cool and I am stoked. And there are going to be times when another card is turned over and the hand just gets a little bit brighter and you get the confidence from that. 
But I look at a gentleman like, I don't know if you've ever heard of Ashley Kane. No, I haven't. Oh man, you, you need to check Ashley out. So Ashley has such a tragic, but you know, such an inspiring guy, tragic story. He lost his little girl Azalea for cancer. And now Ashley was a former professional footballer. He's an absolute um, menace to anything of a physical nature. He's an absolute beast. I think his nickname is actually the beast. And he just goes out there and does these crazy endurance and physical challenges to raise money for the foundation he's created. And every time that man speaks, he pours his heart out and he breaks down emotionally because he, he'll never come to terms with the fact that he's lost his little girl. Mm. And I, I look at a guy like Ashley and I think, oh, I don't know if I could do what he's done to, to feel so out of control in losing someone you love. Oh, I just can't imagine how difficult that would be. But I know that in my own life, because it's me who faces the consequences of what I have to go through, I get a little bit from that. There's, mm. there's some things that I can control being that perspective and that belief and the way that I, I turn up every day. And I'm not sure whether you can relate with that or feel differently about it. No, I can mate, for sure. Um, you know, I've often said as well, like, you know, I, I think if anyone was in my position, like you said before, you don't have a choice, right. And you, you kind of just have to crack on. Um, and I think sometimes though, you know, you might be, you might then downplay what you've gone through. And I must admit, I've had times when I have felt like I'm, I'm over it. You know, when you're, when you're kind of, you know, you're in hospital, you're in so much pain, you're not in a good place. You know, it's groundhog day. You're not getting better. And you think like you do have those thoughts, but then I think the human body in general is more resilient than people think. Um, and I think those who haven't necessarily had significant adversity or challenges in their life, they'd probably surprise themselves if they did face something similar or something like that. They'd probably surprise themselves on how resilient they are. Um, and it's not until often you're faced with that where you realize that, you know, you find a way. And even though I've had those dark moments and at that point in time, I've thought, you know what, I don't think I'm going to get through this, nor do I want to get through this. Well, here I am and I find a way and it's, it's interesting. I've actually got a photo on my, um, on my phone and I often talk about this. It's a time when, um, it's a time when I was definitely at my lowest and I was so unhappy. I was, you know, my health wasn't great. Um, you know, I just didn't really want to be here. I kind of shot on the webcam there, but there's a photo. It's in my notes. Mm. And it's when I was like, I look really unwell. And I was just, I look at my face and I often talk about this in my presentations. I've got my stoma. At that point in time, I did not think I was going to get through that. Like it was just, I didn't, you know, the old light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't have any, I didn't look too far into the future. I didn't, I wasn't positive. I didn't have much hope at all. And let's face it, we all need hope. Hope's what keeps us going. And instead of comparing myself to other people, now I sort of compare myself to myself. Um, and I often reflect on that photo and I find myself doing it pretty regularly now I reflect on that photo on a time in my life where I did not think I'd get through it the worst stage of my life I was depressed I was unhappy I was not well but I got through it even though I didn't think I would and here I am today so when I'm going through something else that might not be as significant as that and I'm sure this new treatment's going to throw up its challenges I reflect on that photo and even looking at that now I go fuck me I've come such a long way and it just gives me that hope to go okay I'm going to get through this as well and it's that quote which everyone's heard of that this too shall pass 
I remember when I was going through the the early days of my, you know, my challenges, my mum used to always send me that quote, this too shall pass. And you can't see it now, but this will pass. This moment you're feeling, whether it's a really bad breakup, whether it's grieving the loss of someone you love, whether it's going through a significant health challenge, this feeling you're feeling, this will pass. Um, and just having that hope, that optimism, that small little, that little light that you can see. So for now, that's I have to remind myself. If I'm going through a challenge, I compare myself to a, an older version of myself and I go, you know what? I got through that. Here I am. I'm going to get through this again. And in another five, 10 years, I'm going to look back at this moment and go, oh shit, remember that time I started that bloody fecal transplant and shit, here I am now doing well. So I think it's a really powerful thing to realize when you're in the heat of it, when you're going through a significant challenge or adversity, as long as you have a little bit of that hope and just to remember that, you know what, I'm going to look back at this moment in a year, two years, 10 years to come, which I do now and I'm going to reflect on it. And it's going to give me that motivation to, to know I can get through other challenges. And it's a really powerful thing. When I started doing that, it's really helped me. Um, and I find myself opening that photo up quite regularly. So beautifully said, mate. I really appreciate you sharing that. If you don't mind me asking and tell me if, if you don't want to talk about it, but you know, when was that photo there? And, and at the time you obviously didn't have that to reflect on what was the thing that got you through that challenging time? Yeah, look, it's a great question. Um, I, like I said, it was that time was, was when I had, um, I just had my uh, whole, um, large bowel and rectum removed. Um, I was in hospital for, for a significant amount of time. Um, there weren't many positives as far as, you know, you know, often when you're recovering from something and you see bits of improvement, it kind of, you're going, Oh, I'm progressing. You know, when you're recovering from a back injury or, you know, you're in hospital and to, you know, a few days all of a sudden you're eating again. And, you know, the doctor comes in with his clipboard and he goes, mate, yep, you've done well today. But for me, there was no improvement for, for weeks. And, you know, I'd, I was kept alive on a TPN pouch and I couldn't even have a sip of water for about three weeks. Every time I'd have a sip of water, I'd vomit it up. And I just lost, I lost about 22 kilos. I was so sick. And I remember I didn't want visitors. And every time I Amber or, you know, family would come in, I was just, I tried to be positive, but then they would leave and I just, you know, dose up on ketamine and painkillers. And I basically did that to just numb, numb how I was feeling. It was a, a pretty bad place to be in. But I think what made it worse was like I said, the doctor would come in the next day with his clipboard and it was a yeah, look, um, look, we'll we'll just have to continue doing what we're doing. And unfortunately I thought that the bow and stomach would have woke, woken up by now, but look, well it can take time. And then there was even a chat that he had with my dad where he was worried and he's like, look, I don't know. And you know, I remember he's had these talks with my dad where he's like, look, I don't know what's going to happen here. And when you've got a smart specialist that's out of answers, you start to think, well, fuck me, this isn't good. Um, and that was a difficult time. But to answer your question, what got me through that was 100% Amber, my family. And it was that they almost gave me the drive. And it's like that old, if I'm not doing it for myself, I need to do it for them. And I'd see, you know, Amber would come in every day and when I could start eating little bits, you know, she'd make little frozen watermelon or she would bring in a new little drink that I could sip on. You know, she'd be all fresh dressed up and, you know, smelling great. And she would come in and sit by my side and try to cheer me up. My dad would walk in on the paper and he would debrief, you know, how the crows went on the weekend, all that sort of stuff. And everyone was there to try and help me. And I think they gave me that motivation in a way. It's like, if I'm not doing it for myself, I'm going to do it for Amber. I'm going to do it for my dad. We've spoken about that beautiful bond, that relationship. And it's like, well, I'm not going to give up almost for them. 
in a weird way, it's pretty dark, I suppose, but I often reflect on that moment and the significance that a support network has, and, you know, gotcha for life and big about it, having that gotcha for life person. If I didn't have that, I honestly don't know how I would have got through or if I would have gone th- got through it. I was in such a bad place. And so knowing that I did have that, that helped me get through it. And I think it's a really important, powerful thing because never underestimate the love of family, a close friend, a partner, never underestimate the, the love and the strength that they can give you. Um, and so that's probably what got me through, mate. And it's um, it took a while. Like I said, this was definitely a couple of months sort of, you know, in hospital and the recovery, then the months, you know, just lying on bed at home. And that's why I got... I speak about my mate Ernie sitting next to me here, you know, essentially he was like my therapy dog. He looked after me. He gave me that sense of purpose. I had to take him for a walk every day, feed him, gave me a bit of that, you know, wine. Slide off topic, but I don't know if you've seen the TV show called Afterlife with um Ricky Gervais yeah. on, on Netflix. Outstanding. Amazing show. How in the space of 10 minutes, you're laughing yourself so much you're crying then you actually are crying because you're fucking emotional um you know he he really plays with your emotion that's really clever anyway long story short with it there's a pretty heavy scene where he kind of wants to end his life he lost his wife to cancer this character he plays um but he's he often talks about the reason he doesn't is because of his dog and his dog comes up to him and barks at him or he has to feed his dog every morning and he takes his dog for his walk and it's a very powerful scene because Although having, I haven't necessarily been in that situation where I wanted to take my life necessarily, but having that purpose of having Ernie, my dog here, for example, is such an amazing thing. Um, and it's a powerful show. If you're listening to this now and you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix called Afterlife, but it really makes you think about these things. And when you when you can relate to it, I've found myself, I've rewatched it a couple of times. And if I ever need a good cry, I'll find myself literally just crying with Ernie next to me watching it. <laughs> Um, but in the next scene, I'm probably laughing because he's a funny man. But anyway, um, slide off topic, but they're, they're the kind of things that got me through it is having like a Ernie in my life, Amber, my dad, my family, um, that sort of thing got me through it, mate. But um, like I said, it definitely wasn't easy. Um, but having gone through it, oh, fuck me, you learn a lot about yourself. Um, and I think anything I go through now is almost insignificant compared to what I went through then. So if I got through that stage of my life, geez, it's going to have to take a hell of a lot for me not to get through uh, the next challenge that I face. That's for sure. Yeah. Man, it's such a beautiful and inspiring message. And, you know, I think sometimes I know people say to me that sometimes they don't feel as though they have those people in your life, but I'd, I'd challenge that. And I'd say that everyone does. There's that friend, whether it's um, family or friends or those people in your life that, that need you as much as you need them at times. And, and they're the people that for me, I've always thought about through the challenges. I know that, you know, my first marathon, something that was pretty special to me was whilst it's a, um, it pales in comparison to what you spoke about, that putting myself through that, that physical and chosen suffering that day. I know that one thing I had written on my arm at the start of the day on a bit of a lastoplast as the, you know, the footy players do, they wrap their wrist up and they write a message on it. I had picked up one of my mates beforehand who was running with me and I took a marker and he had one there with the same idea for the day to put a message on his wrist. And he said to me, what do you want? And I said, 
I said, can you just write on the front here for all you've done today? I'll make you proud. And then on the backside, can you write dad, mum, and sis? So I had, I don't know why I put it on my right arm instead of my left arm. So I could write it myself. <laughs> That's my intelligence for you. <laughs> and mate, the amount of times I looked down at that throughout the run and just broke out into tears. It, it was for me, what got me through that day. And I remember getting to the end of the event and looking down at it and thinking, those words on my wrists and in particular, those three people got me through not just today, but some real challenges over these years. And, and it, it made me very emotional so much so that I actually got it inked there for good in oh, beautiful handwriting. Mate. So beautiful. It's, um, it's a special thing to have those people that pull you through that support network. Talk it to me is, about mate. got you for life and how important that's been for you, that work, that last couple of years and mate, well, it's amazing stuff you're doing. Literally what you're talking about, right? It's, it's that, you know, you don't need to necessarily have some are, are fortunate to have um, many people in their lives who, you know, is their village, their support network. You know, Gus often talks about having, focusing on your village. You know, you can't change the world, but if you focus on your village, you know, when you're going through a tough time, they'll be there for you and vice versa. You know, if we all focus on our village, it doesn't matter if there's one, two, three, five, ten people in that little village, as long as we've got a few of those gotcha for life people. Um and it's such a simple concept, which I've was it's it always drew me to to gotcha for life was the fact that it didn't it doesn't intend to overcomplicate it. It's all about not worrying alone. It's all about the fact that life's fucking hard. We're all gonna go through shit in life. But if you've got that person or people in your life where at two in the morning you can pick your phone up and you can give them a call, you can send them a message and you know they're gonna have a quick reply back or a phone call back to say, mate, is everything okay? Let's talk about it. Just that it's a very simple thing, but it's so powerful. And it's exactly what you're just talking about. Having those people in your life that helps you get through a marathon or for me, you know, that time in hospital helps you get through those challenges. And you mentioned you had Gussie on the, on your podcast a couple of years ago. And that's honestly how it started. I, I met, it was a similar thing to what you're saying about deal and, and Kath. So I meet, meet you go, you know, you guys got a lot in common. You'll get along. And I remember I was looking for some guests we'd, partner with um i'm a november ambassador too and we were doing this november podcast with um with fox sports and typically we're doing like athletes and, and sports stars and we're looking for a couple of guests and a multiple different people i said oh you have to get this guy called gus walland on your on your podcast he's such a beautiful man you know he's everything you talk about you know you'll just love him and so we got gus on the podcast and and you obviously have spoken to gus he's the type of guy as soon as you meet him you know, you feel better. Um, I don't know if you've ever given him a big hug, but he's got like one of those hugs where you give him a big hug and you just feel better. He's just a beautiful man. Uh, in fact, you know, he was messaging me this morning and every time, you, you know, even just talking to him, you feel, you get a smile on your face. He's that sort of guy, right? You're obviously, you know, you're pretty similar, mate. I'm sure you've got that that same thing where people chat to you and they feel better after chatting to you. Um, so I think, yeah, I can see why you guys definitely get along. But um, we spoke to Gus. And at this stage, I never even heard of Gotcha for Life. And I loved the way he spoke about kind of the stuff we're talking about now. And he just, we had this beautiful bond straight away. And he said, mate, I've got no doubt that the vision I have of zero suicides and somehow trying to get to that, you know, I feel like you're the type of guy that can help me achieve that, um, you know. And we just developed this beautiful friendship and relationship as a result of that. Um, and what I love with Gotcha for Life is it's like a family, you know, whether it's 
Gus's amazing wife, Vix, or if it's, you know, the, the current CEO who she's the first to say she took a massive, you're just talking about it actually, Brad, the, a massive um, pay cut to go from her big corporate job in the big marketing gig. And now she heads up, got you for life. She probably works, you know, almost double the hours a week. She less money, but she fucking loves it. And that's what I love. The passion that everyone has all wanting to achieve the same thing. They're all genuinely good, beautiful people that you love being around. And it's like, why wouldn't you want to be around people that make you feel good, right? Um, so that's what I love. And ever since it's probably what, a year or two ago, I'd yeah, helped them out. And now I do some speaking gigs. Um, I've done some with Gus and it's an amazing thing to see him in action. And then we kind of just do it together. Um, and then, you know, we've, they're actually just about to launch, um, this weekend, which is pretty timely whenever this podcast is out, it should hopefully be live, but it's a mental fitness gym. And it's this big new app they've got, which essentially is building your emotional muscle. And it's all about, you know, instead of walking to do, lifting weights physically at the gym, this is a mental fitness gym that they've developed. So I'm really excited to see how that goes, but everything they do, everything they talk about, I just love. And it's, um, like I said, it simplifies things often in life. We overcomplicate shit. But if we just bring it right down and we pick this phone up and right now we just message one of our mates that mean a lot to us that we haven't spoken to in a while and we just tell them we love him, simple fucking text message. If we all start doing that and looking more after our village and calling our mum up because I haven't spoken to my mum in a few weeks and saying, mum, I love you for no other reason. I just wanted to let you know that. If we all start having relationships like that more, I think we're going to make a bit of a, a bit of an impact. So, uh, mate, that's why, yeah, I love Gotcha for Life. Love that, mate. And I can attest to what you're saying because I met Gussie virtually and my actual, funnily enough, my reason for having him on the pod or the reason for reaching out in the first place was as a guy who had recently just started a podcast when I had him on, I was basically going through the memory bank of all the people who I'd seen who had really inspiring stories and just thought, I'm going to reach out to them because I want to hear more. And I remember watching him on the program Marathon Man. Do you remember Marathon Man back in the day? Yeah, yeah, that was great. When he, yeah. um, everyone, buddy, it was a big lad and he sang it, buddy. Yeah, he ended up running a marathon. <laughs> yeah, the New York Marathon. I remember me and my old boy used to watch it together and I used to go, oh, this is, this is brilliant. Like, I love watching this show. And so when I done the research to figure out where he was at and where I could get in contact, I noticed that Gotcha for Life had just been founded and read a bit of the story behind it and, you know, I, it was the first time that I'd spoken to Gussie and I think it's maybe the last time we maybe had one or two interactions since, but I was like, fuck, have I been mates with this guy for 10 years? Yeah. <laughs> like you just get on like a house on fire. Like he's such a good guy that, and, and I think that's really important in, you know, to start something like he has started to have that warm, bubbly, charismatic personality that makes people feel at home is, you know, a really powerful thing to have. Brother, we've been talking for a, a hot minute and I don't want to keep you here. All oh, mate, it's, um, it's going to make you, hopefully you don't edit too much of these. It's going to make you bloody, uh... <laughs> mate, there's no editing. This is, you know, perfect from top to bottom. I love, I love everything you've been talking about. The one thing I do want to ask you though, before we wrap up, brother, is through all the hardship that you've had, what has been the most significant lesson you've learned along the way? Yeah, look, great question. Great question. Um, but I think we've covered off on throughout the podcast, a few of these, these sort of lessons and these messages. But for me, I think it's having those people in your life 
having them there for you and also letting them know how much they mean to you. And we've spoken about this, but I do not think I'd be where I am today if it wasn't for for my dad, my family, my mum, my twin brother, my sister, Amber, for having those people in my life. And the fact that, you know, I'm very proud to say, and we've spoken about it earlier, the fact that I'm having a kid, um, you know, April next year makes me really excited. But I think it just puts everything in perspective. And I think family, friends, relationships, people in your life that mean everything to you, that's the most important thing. Um, And often we get so distracted with other things in life and we find things that get us angry, things that get upset, whether it's our job, whether it's, you know, things that are happening in life. But if we just bring ourselves back to like, you know, what means the most to me? Well, family, um, friends, people in my life and investing more into those relationships. That's one, I guess, key takeaway, one message, one lesson I've learned over the years is just really investing more in your relationships, those people in your life, that little village we spoke about, um, because at the end of the day, they're the people that are going to be in your corner for when you're going through a difficult time. Um, never underestimate that. And that's what gets me excited, knowing that I, like, regardless of my health at the moment and what I'm going to you know, potentially go through in the, my next adversity, my challenge in life, I know that you know, have, starting my own family is like my number one thing I'd love to do. Um, and that just gives me that kind of something to look forward to that priority in life, you know, puts things in perspective and it really just makes me happy. Even talk about it now, you know, it, it generally makes me happy and feel good. And I think it's a really powerful thing. So I think that's one key takeaway is don't underestimate those relationships in your life. Gotcha for life, talk about it all the time. But if there's someone in your life that you really haven't spoken to in a while, that means a lot to you, give them a call, flick them a message, catch up for a coffee. You know, these are the relationships that for the rest of your life, they're going to be there for you and you're going to be there for them. Jobs will change, careers will change, houses will change, you know, financially it will fluctuate, whatever, but those relationships will always be there. They'll always stay the same. So put more time into them. Don't take them for granted. And I guarantee it when you go through a difficult time or a challenge in your life, they're the people that you want in your corner. And that's what's helped me over the years get through some of my, my most challenging times. I love that message. There was a study that recently come out of the US that, can't remember what university had come out of, but essentially the findings were that our relationships and the quality of those few relationships has the biggest impact on our health long-term and how long we live. Also yep, than exercise it, or food. And, and I think it is, well, I know it is so important. Brother, it's been such a privilege. I'm going to make sure that everywhere the listeners, viewers can find you and connect with you and the amazing work you're doing is in the show notes. I've had a blast. That went Mate, so quick. That's me only two hours of chatting. Uh, it's a sign of um, it's a sign of a always a good potty or when you get along with someone. And the fact that we've never met even virtually before now, um, no. that we can just without even trying chat for a couple hours. I think it's a sign that you know we've obviously both got a lot in common. We both share similar passions, which I bloody love, mate. But um, you're doing some amazing work, and uh, hopefully one day um, we can you know catch up, whether it's for a for a coffee or a walk or whatever, that'd be bloody awesome, mate. But I'd uh, love love that. I'm sure we can make it happen. Mate, I have no doubt at all. Thank you so much for your time, brother. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, That would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. 
the more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling and as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week. Thank you.